From Coast to Coast to Coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. Hello, listeners. We are back from our winter break, and unsurprisingly, a lot has happened over the past few months. I'm Charlotte Thomason, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. Since there is so much environmental news to catch up on, we decided to jump right back in with the news roundup. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. Today, we touch on topics of environmental degradation, including pipelines like the Keystone XL. Indigenous peoples of Turtle Island have long been stewards of this land, and many nations are in active legal battles to prevent the destruction of our lands and waters. Take some time to search up ways to support Indigenous land defenders in your area. When the Terra Informa team got together to talk about what we wanted to cover in our upcoming episodes, we realized that there were lots of news stories that broke in 2020 that have developed further or had updates. This inspired us to round up some of the headlines that we've previously covered that need to be tied up, and today, we'll be bringing together a bunch of loose ends. We've got everything from pipelines to parks to river otters, so stay tuned. To start us off, here's Hannah Cunningham covering President Biden's decision to revoke the presidential permit for the controversial Keystone XL pipeline expansion. On January 20th, President Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States of America. Within his first few hours in the office, President Biden revoked the presidential permit for the transboundary Keystone XL pipeline. The Keystone XL project is a contentious development. Owned by the TC Energy Corporation, formerly named TransCanada, the Keystone Pipeline System is a series of three operational pipelines that span from Hardesty, Alberta to Texas. A fourth phase was proposed in 2008 and intended to expand the capacity that can be transported. In 2015, The Nebraska Supreme Court approved construction and the project was approved by the U.S. Congress and the Senate. However, citing concerns about the perception of the United States' efforts to address climate change, then-President Barack Obama vetoed this approval, rejecting the project later that year. Two years later, former President Trump reversed this decision and signed a presidential permit to allow the Keystone XL pipeline. Over the next several years, the project faced a litany of legal, social, and political challenges. The Supreme Court of the United States halted work on the Keystone XL project. President Biden's action rescinded the former presidential permit that would allow for the pipeline to cross the Canadian border, justifying the decision by stating that the Keystone pipeline permit would not be consistent with his administration's economic and climate imperatives. Cancelling the Keystone XL permit was a promise of the Biden campaign, a campaign that ran on a relatively strong climate and environmentally friendly platform. Across the border, here in Canada, the decision was not well received by some. Premier Kenny called the decision a, quote, 
gut punch, end quote, and an insult to Albertans and Canadians. Premier Kenny highlighted the loss of jobs and issues with cancelling approval after it was already issued. The Premier called it an attack on the U.S.-Canadian trade relationship. This response is not surprising. Last year, the province of Alberta made a total financial commitment of $7 billion in the Keystone XL project. $1.5 billion of this was an equity investment, making the Albertan government a co-owner of the project, owning around 5% of the pipeline. At the time, the government reported this investment would bring thousands of jobs and billions in royalties and revenue for the Alberta government. Now, as construction on the pipeline comes to a stop, former Premier Rachel Notley called the decision a, quote, reckless gamble of at least $1.5 billion on a project most people understood was at great risk and over which he had no approval, end quote. In an attempt to salvage the massive investment made to this project, on January 18th, Premier Kenny urged the president to reconsider his promise to revoke the pipeline's approval. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also expressed disappointment in the decision, but also stated he acknowledges Biden's decision to fulfill his campaign promise. Trudeau has also advocated for the pipeline project in discussions with President Biden after it became apparent that he would be the new president of the United States, but appeared unable to sway him. While stating his disappointment in the Keystone XL decision, Trudeau applauded many of the other day one decisions, including choosing to rejoin the Paris Agreement and to place a moratorium on oil and natural gas leasing in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, an issue we covered last year. Premier Kenny has hoped for a stronger federal response, and he stated that he would like to see economic sanctions against the U.S. if the decision is not reversed. Thanks, Anna. Up next, Elizabeth Dowdell will tell us about an unfortunate discovery of the anatomical effects of environmental contamination on Alberta's river otters. On November 29, 2020, the CBC, New York Post, and other news sites ran a headline that was picked up widely, in part likely due to its highly clickable title. Weaker penis bones in river otters linked to oil sands contaminants in new study. While the opportunity for jokes with this headline is tremendous, Sonic Patel usually writes those, so I'll try and stick to the facts. One of the facts being this news obviously caught my attention because, as you'll know from our Conservation Inspiration episode broadcast August 2nd, 2020, the river otter, Lantra canadensis, is my jam. That and the word penis is pretty attention getting in a major news headline. Compared to the headlines, the journal article has the far less attention getting title, Coexposures to Trace Elements and Polycyclic Aromatic Compounds Impacts North American River Otter Baculum. Baculum being the technical term for penis bone. The study was led by Philippe Thomas, an Environment and Climate Change Canada wildlife toxicologist working on the joint Canada-Alberta oil sands monitoring project. With the help of the Alberta Trappers Association and laboratories in Ontario and Winnipeg, researchers obtained and analyzed livers and penis bones, testing how two different chemical contaminants associated with oil and gas production might be impacting the reproductive health of river otters in Northeastern Alberta. The samples, in this case, dead otter bodies, 34 of them to be exact, 
were collected from three test sites along the same river near a SAG-D facility, an open pit oil sands mine, and further downstream at the delta of two rivers. A control site was also located 250 kilometers away. Otter livers were chemically tested for the presence of contaminants, while penis bones were tested for physical criteria, like bone mineral density, dimensions, including the classic length measurement, and mechanical loading, which is like a force test to see how flexible the bones are and at what point they'll break. Yikes. Finally, all this data was put through multiple statistical tests to see what, if any, relationships existed between the different measurements. Like, does liver contamination rise closer to open pit mines? Does otter age make a difference in bone density or load failure? Multiple criteria were tested and retested to see how all the different measurements and analysis might make sense together. Now, before we get to the big finale or the results, let's talk about why this study was news. This research is important, not just because it's about penises and we live in a patriarchal society, otters or not, but because it tested two contaminants in combination, the polycyclic aromatic compounds or PACs, which are some very toxic pollutants, and also trace elements, which are metals or other substances that can be toxic in very low amounts, such as arsenic or lead. PACs are known as endocrine disrupting compounds, meaning they can mess up the hormone system of living things and lead to issues with development, growth, or reproduction. Some trace elements are also endocrine disrupting. So if one is bad, being exposed to two together would be even worse, right? That's part of the question this study answers, because in terms of scientific testing, we don't really know. Harmful substances like PACs and trace elements are rarely tested together in a laboratory setting, even if they are found together in the real world. And when scientists make assumptions about the risk of these two substances together, it's often assumed that their toxicity is additive, meaning they probably just add together or double up. It turns out in this experiment, we got a mixed reaction. Overall, the researchers found otters in oil sands regions had penis bones with lower peak load and stiffness values. But what caused that result? According to this study, thallium and cadmium reduced penis bone strength along with four ring packs, but three ring packs and strontium and iron had protective effects on bone health. So both contaminants, packs and trace minerals had some negative and some protective effects. Way to give us straightforward answers, science. Based on the actual journal article, the headlines for this story were a bit deceptive. Yes, researchers found weaker penis bones and otters from the Athabasca oil sands region, but there were inconsistencies that mean we don't have a completely clear picture of the relationship between otter penis bones and oil and gas contaminants, yet. What this research does is give us an outline for that relationship and provides strong evidence that we should be testing these types of co-exposures more often because we don't really know what's happening out in the real world. So is this bad news or good news? It's not an easy question to answer because scientific discoveries are not really bad or good. They're about information and understanding. Deciding if a discovery is bad or good is done by people like citizens, politicians, or regulators, depending on how this new science affects them. 
Now, the science in this story discovered an alarming relationship between otter reproduction and oil and gas pollutants. It also discovered some surprising and protective factors for otter reproductive health that were previously not known. If anything can be considered good about this story, I'd say it's the collaboration that inspired the science. The research team didn't decide to study otters and their reproductive health because they are otter obsessed like me, but because Dene and Cree trappers had observed a change in the number of otter pups being born in the Northern Alberta region. Close observation and indigenous knowledge of otter populations was integral to the conduct of this experiment. From the first observation to sharing knowledge and providing samples for analysis. Penises aside, a headline about Western scientists being inspired by, collaborating with, then validating and empowering Indigenous knowledge sounds like good news to me. Thanks, Elizabeth. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to a News Roundup episode of Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton, Alberta. Next, Terra Informer Tiana Barber-Cross gives us an update on the Alberta provincial government's decision to delist, quote, underutilized parks and how they aren't providing the data to back that decision up. In the spring of last year, the provincial government announced a plan to optimize Alberta's parks. Included in the plan was the full or partial closure of 20 of Alberta's provincial parks and recreation areas. 11 parks would be completely closed to the public, and 9 parks would be accessible but without services and maintenance. The total area up for closure was around 16,000 hectares, that's 160 square kilometres. Environment Minister Jason Nixon said Alberta's campgrounds operated a loss, costing taxpayers $86 million each year to manage and maintain, and generating only $36 million in revenue. Optimizing Alberta's parks would save the province $5 million. The sites up for closure were considered by the province to be small, underutilized provincial parks and recreation areas near rural communities and small centres. But according to Alberta Wilderness Association Conservation Specialist Grace Wark, the characterization downplays the significant role that these places play in conservation efforts. However, despite the government stressing how little these sites were used by the public, no information on that exact data to support this statement has ever been released. Multiple organizations, including CBC News, Canadian Parks and Wilderness Association, and the Council of Canadians, have tried to get this information via freedom of information requests with varying degrees of success. CPAWS filed a request in the spring, but the documents they received in July contained no visitation information for the aforementioned sites. The Council of Canadians, a nonprofit organization, filed a freedom of information request in September and received information on 11 provincial parks and provincial recreation areas offering camping. All of these sites showed no sign of not being used, with the pattern actually involving an increase in camping registrations over the last five years. The financial records of other campgrounds, including those with self-registration, have yet to be released to the public, despite the data implied to exist by Nixon when he stated in a town hall discussion that Alberta Park staff could indeed track the finances of even self-registration sites via the revenue they produce. 
NDP MLA and environment critic Marlon Schmidt called for the province to show us the data. Schmidt recalls from personal experience that many of these so-called underutilized sites are actually very busy and often overbooked. Among those slated for partial closure included Dinosaur Provincial Park and Dry Island Buffalo Jump Provincial Park, southeast of Red Deer. Many of these parks also generate tourism opportunities for nearby communities, the loss of which would surely be felt. Former NDP Environment Minister Shannon Phillips also believes that this information exists and has said she sees no reason for the data to not be released except to keep with the initial narrative of underutilization the government has proposed. Many Alberta organizations have opposed these changes, including the opposition NDP and various conservation organizations. Perhaps due to this pushback, Nixon has begun to change the wording he uses to discuss the proposed changes, saying that there never was any intention of selling parks lands, but instead, quote, the assets that may be in those areas, unquote. Furthermore, Nixon has tried to assure the opposition and conservation organizations that even if the said sites lose their Alberta park status, they will still be protected as public land. However, this change in messaging hasn't changed conservation organizations like CEPA's thoughts on the proposed changes. CEPA's Katie Morrison has said that, quote, It seems the government keeps changing their messaging to react to Albertans' concerns, but without actually changing the plan to address Albertans' concerns." Unquote. Thanks, Tiana. Continuing on with Alberta Parks, Andrea Miller has an update on the future of those parks that were at risk of being delisted or even closed. Hello, listeners. As we've just heard, the Alberta government's lack of transparency and lack of public consultation on the changes to public parks has generated swift opposition. The Alberta Environmental Network and the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society's Northern and Southern Alberta chapters set up their Defend Alberta Parks campaign, and the provincial NDP launched Don't Go Breaking My Parks, urging Albertans to add their name to the growing list opposing the UCP's plan. In response, the UCP created their My Parks Will Go On platform in an attempt to separate fact from fiction. But in June, amidst this continued public opposition and an online petition with over 50,000 signatures, the province announced that 17 of the 20 parks on the closure list would temporarily remain open for the 2020 season in order to provide Albertans with more opportunities to get outside during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, perhaps one of the most troubling announcements was the province's initial plan to delist and transfer 164 sites to third-party management. This temporary pause on the parks closures did not address these outstanding sites. Under the Provincial Parks Act, management and protection of provincial parks and recreation areas is the responsibility of the Minister of Environment and Alberta Environment and Parks. Responsibilities also include establishing and maintaining programs in order to fulfill the purpose of these spaces, which is to preserve Alberta's natural heritage, conserve flora and fauna, facilitate outdoor recreation and education, and ensure lasting protection for the benefit of future generations. So you can imagine our concern when Environment Minister Jason Nixon 
said that any sites that have not secured a third-party partnership will revert to general crown land and can be sold, opening up the possibility of industrial development in these delicate landscapes. But in December, the province announced that it no longer planned to close or delist any of Alberta's parks. The province was able to create or maintain partnerships with managers for 170 sites, and all of these sites will remain accessible to Albertans and retain their designations and protections, even any outstanding sites where a third-party partnership has not been established. According to the province, partnerships have always been an essential part of park management since the first provincial parks were established in 1932. Partner organizations can maintain trails, operate campgrounds and day-use areas, and support overall visitor experience. Partnerships with organizations like park ambassadors and campground hosts are well established, and the new partners keeping the sites in question open and operating include Buffalo Lake Métis Settlement and Nordic Alberta. But a lack of transparency around these partnerships is ringing alarm bells. CPOS Northern Alberta Chapter Parks Coordinator Chris Smith says that some of these partnerships are only short-term contracts, and the overall nature of these partnerships is unclear. He calls for, quote, transparent operating agreements, end quote, to ensure that a high standard of conservation is maintained for all third-party managed sites. Now, before you exhale with relief, potentially posing an additional risk to Alberta's park system are changes to Alberta's crowned land vision legislation, expected in 2021. The UCP announced their Common Sense Conservation Plan during their campaign in 2019, and the Crown Land Vision is part of that, along with their familiar mandate of red tape reduction. The Crown Land Vision outlines the need to get rid of outdated or overlapping rules and build a plan that is, quote, focused on results, unquote. The province is also assuring Albertans that these spaces will not be open to industrial development as previously thought, and in particular that the protected public lands on the eastern slopes will be off-limits to coal leasing and exploration. We'll hear more about that in a moment. was Andrea. Finally, here's Hannah Cunningham again with an update on the provincial government's push for coal mining projects in the eastern slopes of the Rockies and the public backlash that followed. As of mid-January, the United Conservative government in Alberta is currently backpedaling, or maybe stalling is a better word, after they faced widespread public opposition at their push for new coal developments on the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains. There are a few current moves that the current government have made in order to promote coal development in the province. One is putting forward a new plan that changes the water use rules for the Old Man Watershed in southern Alberta, and the other was when a coal policy from 1976 was rescinded in the spring of 2020. Let's start with the rescinding of the coal policy. 
Its full title was A Coal Development Policy for Alberta, and it essentially prevented open pit mining in the eastern slopes of the Rockies, as well as banning any mining at all in certain environmentally sensitive areas. Last spring, on the Friday before the Maylong weekend and during the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic, Energy Minister Sonia Savage revoked the coal policy with no consultation. This move opened up opportunities for several mines to more aggressively push forward on plans for operation in the Crow's Nest Pass in southern Alberta. So there's the rescinding of the coal policy. The United Conservatives are also trying to change the water use rules for the Eastern Slopes watershed. Currently, rules for this area state that only certain amounts of water can be used for specific activities, including irrigation, municipal water supplies, recreation, and limited amounts for industrial purposes. The proposed new rules would instead set an overall water use limit for all activities, meaning that industrial water use could increase greatly from its current levels if coal mining projects are started. Specific environmental concerns relating to coal mines and watersheds include the large amount of water that these mines require year-round, as well as the potential that they can leak pollutants into the water system. These moves by the United Conservative government, paired with their introduction of 11 new areas in the Crow's Nest Pass as new coal leases back in December, sparked public backlash. Tens of thousands of Albertans signed petitions and wrote letters opposing these decisions, and celebrities including Katie Lang and Cor Blund voiced their opposition as well. In response to this backlash, the United Conservatives announced that they would be cancelling the 11 new coal leases and will pause all further coal lease sales in former Category 2 lands. Category 2 lands include parts of the Rocky Mountains and foothills. However, Katie Morrison from the Southern Alberta chapter of the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, or CPAWS, has stated that this announcement is, quote, too little, too late, end quote. According to Morrison, this pause, announced by the United Conservatives, doesn't have much effect on the ability of mining companies with existing leases to explore and develop in the area. There are more than 840,000 hectares of coal leases and rights in the eastern slopes, with around half of those being in lands that were formerly protected as Category 2. So, yes, 11 new coal leases were cancelled. But concerns are still high about the impacts of coal mining in the eastern slopes. Development for mining in this area directly affects the traditional territories of Indigenous communities in the area. Kainai Nation and Siksika Nation from Treaty 7 territory, and Ermanskin Cree Nation and Whitefish Lake First Nation from Treaty 6 territory, are included in those who have filed for the judicial review of the province's decision to rescind the 1976 coal policy. Court documents for the judicial review state, quote, the ability to use their traditional lands for a range of practices and access to traditional resources is extremely important for the nations, as the land and resources underpin their culture, tradition, identity, well-being, spirituality, and rights, end quote. As of when this episode is being recorded, we will have to wait and see what the outcome of this request for judicial review will be. Thanks, Hannah. That's all the time we have for this week. I hope you feel caught up on all the environmental news stories you may have missed.
I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason, and thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of wonderful volunteers. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Terra Informa. Did you know we're actually recruiting new volunteers right now? If environmental storytelling is your jam, visit our Instagram to grab the link to our volunteer application form. We would love to hear from you. Take care, listeners, and we'll catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.